Dear Father God, I thank you today that we are saved by a majestic power that reaches down from the highest position in the universe to treat the lowliest saint as of infinite importance to an eternal God. And Lord, we're grateful for love that found us in the way. So bless us for Jesus' sake. And may we be people of the Bible who love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, holiness is not possible unless you can endure the fire of the divine rebuke. And this is not our way, right? You know, we live in an age where men and women in the church and the world want religion on their own terms. I mean, the insistence of the, the modern mind, the demand of God, what we want from God when we approach God in holy worship, as if God must surrender to what we tell him to do. That is in the milieu and the mindset of the modern Christian world. People often want God to meet their wants, not their needs, but their wants. And thus they define what religion is by whether or not God will stack up all the, the elements and provide for them. And and so people come to God with an agenda that puts obedience on trial and that mandates to God himself so that God must surrender to religious innovation. And if God doesn't deliver in the way we want him to, then somehow God doesn't deserve to be God. That goes through the mind. The majesty of God, the power of God, the authority of God, these are often thought of as harsh relics of a bad religion, which in fact, they are the material stuff of what makes God who he is. And so the very things that people repelled from in the modern era of worship, the majesty of God, the power of God, the authority of God through his word, these are the very things that we need on the eve of the advent of Jesus Christ. Because in the end, someone has to be God and let God be God. In the modern way of thinking, why not make the believer God and like Lucifer, push him off his throne with innovation? You know, we can, we can think our way right out of the great religion God has given us in Jesus. When God calls a man or woman to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, God calls that man or woman to come and die. There is no compromise with God that can negate the essential role of God as our king. You know, I have noticed, now tell me if I'm right or wrong in this regard. <clears throat> I have noticed that there is a desire in our culture to resist authority, right? Now, when you hold your Bible in your hand, I accidentally left mine at the house. When you hold your Bible in your hand, you know what you're holding? Take it out. Take it out. You're holding a document that has authority in our lives and for our future, for your family, because it represents the authority of our God who is king. So when God calls a man or woman to come to him in Christ, he calls that man or woman to come and die and to submit to God's infallible authority in the Bible and his own being. So there is no compromise with God that can negate the essential role of God as our king. And so holiness is not possible unless you and I, unless we can endure the fire of the divine rebuke from our king. The call of Isaiah in Isaiah 6.1 is couched in the context of a failed king who dared to march into the holy place of the sacred sanctuary and there burn incense on the altar without permission from God. I mean, he got to thinking through what religion needed to do and how he could change it, and so he morphed it into what he wanted it to be. His name was King Isaiah. Not Isaiah, but his name was King Uzziah. He was a, a religious progressive 
For centuries since the appointment of Aaron in the wilderness as high priest, the priests from the tribe of Levi had offered incense before God. Why? Because God had said, this is how I want it to be. I want the priests to offer the incense. I want the kings to stay out of the sanctuary. I will divide the roles. And so the high priesthood, as well as the entire priesthood, came to the tribe of Levi. And God commanded the priests to carry the incense, the priests to go in and serve the sanctuary. And so he was to pray for the people and offer incense before them. In fact, there was a, there's a verse in Leviticus, which I think is amazing. It says the priests were to carry the names of the sons of Israel on their breastplate into the presence of God continually. So they were to bring them in. But the king was to stay out and let the priests do his work. But there was a time coming. The Bible predicted there would be a time coming when God would unite the office of priest and king, the office of the priesthood was from the tribe of Levi, the office of the king from the tribe of Judah. But one day God would unite these two into one. Turn to Zechariah 6 verses 12 to 13. Zechariah 6, 12 to 13. (coughs) Verse 12, then say to them, thus says the what? The Lord of hosts, behold a man in whose name is branch, for he will branch out from where he is. Now who's the branch here? The branch in the context is the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Christ was born in the city of Nazareth. Nazareth means the place of the shoot. The shoot becomes the branch. Jesus is the messianic branch. And it says, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Friends, God has been building his temple one stone at a time, one person at a time through the centuries until it will be revealed in the last day what his holy kingdom is. Verse 13, yes, the prophet says, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne. That had never happened in the history of the Old Testament, that someone who was a priest would be a king and yet it would be so in him. And the council of peace, the prophet writes, will be between the two offices. No longer will there be tension between the priesthood and the kingship because the two offices will merge into the messianic priest king. Now, I don't know about you, but I need Jesus to be my priest. I need him to go to before the Father to pray in my behalf, and I need to know that my sins are forgiven and know that my prayers are answered. Christ is my high priest. But friend, Christ is more than that. Christ is also the King of kings and Lord of lords. I need the authority of Christ that can cast out devils in my life. What about you? I need the authority of Christ that can say no to an enemy that oppresses. And so the two roles would unite. Now, Isaiah, in Isaiah's day, was a religious progressive in this way. He wanted to improve on the divine order and innovate a little bit with the priesthood. Why not offer incense as a king? Why not me become a little bit like the priest and so lighten up the priesthood a little bit? Why not show the people that the king can improve on worship and religion because the king is wise? And so the king became a philosopher king with innovative ideas to show God and the people how it could be better. Who says that I can't be both a king and a priest? Moses was an old stuffed shirt. He's dead. He wrote the Torah. I'm alive. I'm authority. I'm a living king. I will worship God in my own way, and I'll show the way to the the people as a philosopher king. And so Isaiah marched into the sanctuary to force his new religious interpretation down the throats of the priests and upon God himself. Now, personally, I want to speak to King Isaiah. I, I feel a little sympathy for him, actually. I don't think he was trying intentionally to usurp the role of the Messiah. 
I don't think he was trying intentionally to violate the word of God. I don't think he was trying intentionally to set aside the authority of God. I think he just got caught up in how smart he felt he was. And like anyone, he can go astray, and thus he did, but he was the king. Now, God didn't kill him because of his arrogance. God could have smote him because of what he did. He marches right into the sanctuary to offer incense. When, when you know, God could have done to him what he did to us when he touched the, mar- the ark. But God didn't do that. Instead, God disciplined him. You know, very often we read the stories when God acts and we think that God is being harsh. When if you realize his judgment is partial, he's really being kind and considerate to someone who's defied his person. And so the priests physically opposed him. They said, King, it's not for you to do this thing. You have done wrong and God won't honor you because of it. Don't do it, King. And what did he do? He got angry with them, and that is when God smote him to discipline him, but not to kill him. Look at 2 Chronicles 26, verse 19. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. He was doing this, and suddenly the disease was on him. The forehead where it, where it was first appeared is the place where the seal of the living God goes in the book of Revelation. Revelation 7, 3, God puts a seal at the end of time on the forehead. God's law in Deuteronomy 6, 8 goes on the forehead as frontlets between a person's eyes. And where his divine name is placed, because God's name and God's law are the same thing in Scripture, the name of God and the Lamb go on the forehead in Revelation 14, verse 1. And so the leprosy broke out on the forehead. It broke out on the very place where his mind should have been submissive to God's authority in his life. And there the disease was seen. King Isaiah realized that the rebuke had not come from the priest. It had come from God. And he was a leper till the day he died. They took him out of the sanctuary. and He didn't fight him anymore. And they took him to a house. And there he stayed in the house as an unclean king in the midst of an unclean people. And King Uzziah never entered the sanctuary again to worship God. He was banned from the presence of God. He was an unclean man who served an unclean kingdom, an unclean nation. He was a symbol of the times in which he lived. And so he died all alone as an unclean thing, an unclean king in the land of Israel. Friend, this is the context for Isaiah 6 and the beginning of the ministry of the gospel prophet Isaiah. You know, as people have read the teachings of of Isaiah, they realize that St. Paul, when he wrote the book of Romans and Galatians and so on, that he borrowed so heavily by divine inspiration from Isaiah 53 and 2 and various places that the gospel prophet influenced the great evangelist, the apostle Paul. Isaiah 6.1, here is the story as it begins. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Now when the king died, Isaiah saw the real king who is God. So the, the transition here from the death of King Isaiah to the vision of the king sitting on his throne is intentional. When, when we come to God... It's not possible to worship him right unless we see God as our king and authority in life. Majesty, power, and authority belong to the king. And Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up as a king. So I ask the question today, I ask it forthrightly, how high and lifted up is God as your king? 
How high have you allowed him to be in your life? Or have you brought him down to where you're at so that his majesty is stripped of its glory? How perfect is he in power and character so that you can recognize him as king in your life? Friend, God cannot change a life that will not submit to God as king. In fact, if you come to him and you are unwilling to surrender to him, there is no change that can fully affect your life. The Jews cried out when Jesus was condemned. You you know what they said, we have no king but what? But Caesar. So I ask you today, who is your king? Isaiah saw the king real high sitting on his throne, his train filled the temple. Isaiah's name meant my strength is the Lord, and yet he did not trust in God as his strength or his wisdom. Isaiah saw the king on a high throne, his train filled the temple. The Hebrew says literally for the word train, his skirt filled the temple. God's clothing and scripture is the light. Some people say, well, what on earth is his train? How can it fill the temple? Well, when you look at scripture, look at Psalms 104 verse 2. The scripture is very clear that the garments of God are the light, is the light that surrounds his, his person. It says, who covers thyself with light as with a garment who has stretched out the heavens like a tent. So when God's train filled the temple, it was the glory of God's light that was spreading through the temple everywhere. We know in Scripture that God lived in the pillar of fire and cloud and that God gave light to Israel because God's skirt and God's clothing, as it says right here, is the light. And so he was clothed in light in the pillar of fire and cloud. In James 1.17, the Bible calls God the Father of lights. In Daniel 2.22, it says light dwells with God. In 1 Timothy 6.16, it says God alone has immortality and that God dwells in light that is inapproachable. We, we know from physics and general relativity that light never ages. I mean, we grow old. Light never grows old. It experiences no time dimensionality and the, the concept of time dilation that Einstein envisioned. No time dimensionality. Light is timeless, and so light is always young, and light is always the ancient of days, while it is still the bright and morning star. Light never ages. As the oldest thing we know, light is ever young also, because it's just as young as the day that light first was. Einstein demonstrated this in his simple equation, E equals mc squared, and all the implications that come out of it. In 1 John 5, 3, the Bible says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Friend, in the Bible, the universe is a temple. You know, when you go out at night and you look up at the sky, you ever do, how many stargazers we have here? Any, any stargazers? I'm a stargazer. I plan to get real good at it next year because our lights go off here and I have a telescope in my office. We're going to open it up for the kids and we're going to look at Orion's nebula, which is the very center of the universe, I believe. You know, the great emerald throne of the book of Revelation, we have good reason to believe in Scripture, through the chiastic relationships of Scripture, that the Orion Nebula is the very throne of God, the emerald rainbow that surrounds the throne of God. And if you want to look at God's throne one night, we're going to set up our telescope and figure out how to do it. Is that cool? Uh, Chris Bonola used to do this for us for years here, and he worked at NASA, and I... I'm going to have to figure out if we can find some astronomer buffs around here who can help the pastor use his telescope. We have what we need. But you know, when I look up at the stars at night, I see a temple that is the universe. And I see the the light that fills the universe and the train of God is filling the house of God at night, the holy temple. In Psalms 104.2, the Bible says, God stretched out the heavens like a tent, like a sanctuary, 
And so the universe is a holy house. The earthly sanctuary was a model of the heavenly universe where God is king as the alpha and the omega, the potentate of time. Psalm 78, 69. Take your Bibles. Look at that. Look what it says. It says, God built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. The sanctuary that Moses built was a model of the universe. And so God's house is the cosmic order and his glory, his light, his train fills the temple of God. So when you look up at the stars at night and you look at the fire and the light and the sky above, you should get a sense of the grandeur of God's glory. You know, the Hubble Deep Field Telescope has pushed back almost to the dawn of time. You see galaxies and clusters very close together. The James Webb Telescope, which is coming online hopefully in the next couple of three years, will be able to peer to the edge of the universe. And you know what they're going to find, I believe? More universe. Because I believe that God is bigger than our telescope. God is bigger than our light cone. And yet the glory of God fills the temple. Isaiah 6, 2. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Now in the Bible, six is the number for a man. Now what is six famous for? Six, six, six. Remember? What's it famous for? The mark of the beast, right? But you'll notice in Revelation 13 it says that's the number of a man. See, the number six itself is man's number because man was created on what day? The sixth day. And so three sixes means man trying to be God. Six, 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 taking the place of the Holy Trinity. It has other implications as well. Angels are at times described as men in the Bible. Like the men in white at Joseph's tomb and the two men at his ascension, we know that angels can appear as men. Seven here in Scripture is the number for perfection, symbolized by the Sabbath day when God finished his work, when he himself brought his presence into our world by holy covenant. But it's interesting that six is just one number shy of seven. So man always wants to come one number shy of God's perfection. It takes God to bring us all the way to seven. Six means you're not God, but only a man. Six, six wings, the number six here is given for that reason. These are creatures. They may be angels, but they're kind of like meta-humans with superhuman power, but nonetheless, they are just creatures like us in their own fiery way who must submit to God like we must submit to God. So what are seraphim in Isaiah 6, verse 2? Seraphim is a Hebrew participle, and it literally means the burning ones. Anyone ever play with fire as a youngster? You play with, you have played with, do you still play with fire? Your head's going up and down. When we were kids, we used to do something pretty explosive. We used to get these large trash bags, and I would make a chemical reaction and produce some type of methane gas, and I would fill those trash bags so they blew up, and I'd tie them off. So they were about the size of, you know, three or four foot full of explosive gas, and we would put them on a pile of wood and we would then light it and run like crazy. And they would blow up and send a, 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 a I'm saying the wrong thing. Kids don't do that. <laughs> but that's what we do. We play with fire. Now we shouldn't be playing with fire. I got burned pretty bad as a young person playing with fire. It's not a good thing. But seraphim are burning ones. They're always on fire. You know, in the Bible, seraphim are on fire for God, like we should be on fire for God if we're filled with the Holy Spirit. In 2 Thessalonians 1.7, Jesus will return, the Bible's very clear, in fire with his holy angels. Angels are flames of fire in the Bible. Look at Hebrews 1.7. Open your Bible, quickly turn there. Of the angels, he says, what does it say? 
who makes his angels winds and his servants, what? Flames of fire. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. God makes his angels flames of fire. In Numbers 21.6, the word seraphim is used as a name for the fiery serpents that bit the disobedient sons of Israel, and they died in the desert. You know, a, a, the bite of a serpent burns like fire. Seraphim in Hebrew is plural, as I said. The, the, the singular term is seraph, without the em at the end, seraph. And it's the singular form. And the singular form would describe one seraphim, one angel that is a burning one. It's used in Isaiah 14, 29 to describe a flying serpent. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, <coughs> that the rod which smote you is broken, and from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying seraph, a flying seraphim. So serpents are not just a, a symbol of Lucifer in the Bible. Sometimes they're a symbol of wisdom and healing. You remember it says as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In that one instance, a serpent represented Christ. We've got to look at the Bible in its context. So an evil angel is a bad flying serpent. But hear what I'm saying. But a good seraphim is a good flying serpent. You never thought that angels might look like snakes, did you? The Bible teaches that. It's universal to the ancients' understanding of, of serpents. So don't be surprised when you get to heaven and you discover that some very good-looking angels with wings look like serpents. Now what do these meta-human-like burning ones do with all that energy and fire? Why are they high above the throne of God as seraphim? Isaiah 6.3, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In verse 1, his train, which is his skirt, fills the temple. His temple is the universe, and God is in his temple. And the light that is his skirt fills the sky in the night. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Uh, but we don't, we don't live real high and lifted up. Anyone here afraid of heights? When I was a boy... I used to climb these tall trees with no one around. One day behind my house, I climbed a big tree that was half rotten. You know, I was climbing the limbs, and they were doing okay until I got to the top. And then the limbs broke, and I fell all the way out of the tree, holding the tree, scooting down, fell onto the ground. Busted myself up real good. I was there an hour trying to get up. Mercy, exactly. And I never climbed trees like that again. Never climb a dead tree where the limbs can fall off. We, we're always trying to climb up as children. We learn as adults not to climb so high. And yet God is high and lifted up. If you went to antiquity and you went to the pyramid, the great pyramids there in Egypt, or you look at the great ziggurats of Babylon, every one of them, the idea is somehow through a temple you can climb up to God and find God where God is high. Daniel says God's dwelling is not with men. Actually, that's what the... Um, that's what the wise men said to Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel said, not so. God hears. He, he understands. Friends, we worship a God who comes to us. He may be as high as the heavens above. He's here just as much. So we don't live in the realm of seraphim. We can't even get to the moon without spending billions of dollars. And we can't stay long anyway. So where is the Lord for us? The seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy. For God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son the Holy Trinity are there, so holy, holy, holy. They're speaking of all that is God, is the Lord God of hosts. Now here's the answer to the, to the question, 
The earth is of his glory. Where is it? The earth is full of his glory. So when the light of God's glory fills the universe as his train, what about us? We're in the outer court. You guys a little warm. I hear, I see heads going up. Go ahead and we'll bump it up a little bit. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And here is the answer. The earth is what? Full of his glory. I said we'll bump it down a little bit. We'll make it cooler for you, okay? There is light up there, friend, but there's also light down here. So you look up at the sky, you see the light, but guess what? God can be found right here on planet Earth where the sun shines. There's light up there, but there's also light right down here. His train fills the entire temple. Isaiah 6, 4, open your Bibles. The Bible says, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord real high, and then he saw that his majestic glory comes to earth and fills the whole earth. The high and lifted up Lord of heaven and earth knows how to come down here and fill our darkness with his holy light. He knows how to spread his light around so we don't miss out on him and fail to see the glory that is God. Friends, God wants you to have starlight here in your life. God's voice shakes the earth when he calls. In the book of Revelation, every time there's an earthquake, God is calling people to him. You know, when was the last, do we have an earth, we had an earthquake here that actually shook D.C. a few years ago. How many of you were in Washington, D.C. when that happened? I was going to the world, I was coming back from the World Bank and I was driving so I didn't even feel it. You know, every time there's an earthquake in the book of Revelation, God is saying, come to me. He's speaking with the voice that shakes the earth. And Isaiah saw the temples filled with smoke. When Isaiah saw it, John saw it also in the book of Revelation because it will be seen again at the end of time. What we find in Isaiah 6 is prophetically reapplied for the end of time. Look at Revelation 4.8. Here we have an application of this song, not the song, the statement is proclaimed by the seraphim. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to sing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. That's what the seraphim were saying. Now turn to Revelation 15, verse 7 and 8. And one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were ended. So it's like Isaiah 6 vision all over again at the time of the end. So what happened back then should be studied by us. God's admonition to Isaiah is relevant for us if we want God in our life. So what do prophets do when they encounter the God that is real high and his glory is everywhere? Go back to Isaiah 6, verse 5. And Isaiah is speaking, I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah saw the King that was real high. He saw him in all his authority, his majesty, and his power. He saw the light that fills the night sky that is his skirt, the train that fills the temple. And he saw his glory fill the earth that we live in. And he was utterly enamored with the majesty and power of God. And when he saw God for who he was in his majesty and power, Isaiah was right where God wanted him to be. You see, friend, only a humble, plain people, a people who have been brought low can be exalted. Only someone who is small in his own eyes can have God wipe away the tears of sin. Change never comes when we think we are philosopher kings and we own the outcome of our lives. 
Philosopher kings like Isaiah always try to improve on God's truth and his word, and they will never come to where they bow down to God's truth so that God can transform them. So it takes the vision of the real high God to call us to reverence and humility so we can be saved in his presence from the fire that is his presence. Isaiah said exactly what we need to say when we see the vision of God in the light of our sins. He said, woe is me, for I am lost. Isaiah isn't the only one who is unclean in Israel. The young prophet yet to be, Isaiah, realizes he's not different than the king. I am unclean too, he said. I live in the midst of a people who are unclean. We're all lost in the light of God's perfect light and glory. Woe is me, he said. I am lost. That is what real Bible religion does. Real Bible religion doesn't make us feel good about who we are. Real Bible religion doesn't say, well, you know, you're just a great person. Real Bible religion speaks the truth to what we are. It shows us our sins. It reveals to us that we are rotten to the core because of our connection to Adam and our own proclivity to sin. And somehow there must be a new light that fills the life. And so the vision of God shows us first who we are so we can see God as what we need. That is what real Bible religion does to us. It, it puts us in the dust so that God can pull us up and save us. It brings us to our knees so we can see ourselves in the right light so that we can understand Jesus and come to him. And friend, when you see yourself in the presence of a holy God, you too, like Isaiah, must say, Woe is me, I am lost. But that's not where God leaves the humble saint who confesses his condition before God. He never leaves us in the dust. Angels fly fast when someone recognizes that there is a sinner in need of grace that is calling on the name of the Lord. You know, in the book of Daniel, Daniel 9, you, you read his prayer. It's about a two and a half minute prayer. Gabriel comes from the throne of the universe and comes right to Daniel before he even finishes his prayer. The, the prayer was answered before he arrived because that's how fast angels can fly. They can come to us to meet our need when we are humbled. Isaiah 6, verse 6. Then flew one of the seraphim to me, having in his hand a burning coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Friend, dear heart, the altar is the place of prayer in the sanctuary. But it was also in the sanctuary, that golden altar was an extension of the altar of sacrifice that was in the outer court. Christ died on the earth, the altar, the outer court of the universe, as the substitute for the human race. He came into history, became one of us. He absorbed our life, our sin. Every human being from Adam to the end was found in him from Gethsemane to the cross as he relived the life of the human race. And he died on the altar of the earth for every one of us. And so grace comes from the altar. Why? You see, Christ took our prayers to the golden altar before God's throne so that what he prayed right there at the cross in Gethsemane could be reapplied in our lives in history as he took the place of our great high priest. The book of Revelation talks about him leaving the altar of sacrifice and coming to the golden altar before God at his, at his ascension. Now, I've noticed that we often sin with our mouths. Have you ever sinned with your mouth? No. If you say no, you just sinned. Okay, have you sinned with your mouth? Said something about somebody you didn't mean to or said something because you were thinking about how they hurt you? I've done that, and I can do it. 
and I'm praying about it in my own life, maybe you should pray as well, because it's very easy to do that. We are, we are inclined to defend ourselves at someone else's expense. And I have found myself, even this week, I, I found myself doing that. And it was, I said, man, Lord, help me with that. Our mouths can sin, right? I have and you have. And the angel took the fire from the altar and put it where? On his lips. Friend, Jesus died near the altar of the red heifer on the summit of the Mount of Olives where they burned a red heifer to ashes. The word red in Hebrew is the word Adam, the Adam heifer. And they burned it to ashes to purify the people when they came into contact with the dead. Now here's what it's saying. We have been corrupted by Adam. Adam is our dead father. We carry his genes. We carry his genetic legacy. We have touched the dead. We are corrupted by a nature that goes back to Adam. So Jesus died at the altar to take away our sins and to take away our uncleanness that goes all the way back to Adam. Now the Bible says the place of his sacrifice was Golgotha, the hill of the skull. The early Christians applied it to Adam's skull because they believed, rightly so, that somehow Melchizedek, who was Sham, had come there to the place of Moriah and had buried his skull near the Temple Mount. Christ died where the two Adams meet. He died and thus he became the sin offering for the dead. Hebrews 13, 10 and 11. The book of Hebrews says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned where? What does the text say? Outside the camp. Jesus died outside the camp. The traditional site of the cross and the Holy Sepulcher, which is to the south of the Temple Mount, was technically within the precincts of the city of Jerusalem. It does not work here as, as Scripture teaches. The greatest scholarship indicates that the altar that the book of Hebrews is talking about was right out the eastern gate, right up that causeway, up to the summit of the Mount of Olives. And to the southern ridge line was the Roche or skull line of the ridge line. And that's where Jesus died, facing the veil of the temple that was rent from top to bottom, facing God as every criminal had in the history of Israel because they were executed on that mountain. That's where Jesus died for our sins. The altar at the summit purifies us from the uncleanness as millions of people have come from year to year in ancient times to watch the service of the Passover. They saw what was happening right up there at that altar, the altar of the red heifer, which was the heavy lifting altar for all sin sacrifices in the second, second temple period. So Christ saw his father in the darkness. He, he saw his father and then he couldn't anymore. And Christ became the sin offering at the altar. So what, did it, what happened to Isaiah was this. You see, the coal of the altar that is in the future of Christ's sacrifice for him was taken back in time to touch the lips of the gospel prophet so he could share the gospel for the future generations yet to be. It traveled back and it touched him. What Christ would do touched him. Four seraphim statements are made in verse 7 that must be said to every believer so our lives can be touched too. First he said, woe is me, I am lost. And then the angel says, behold. Number one, behold. Friend, when we come to Christ recognizing that we are unclean, it is only then that we see ourselves as sinners in need of grace. It is grace we cannot get by works. We also see the real high God who is really there for us. Behold, John said in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We must behold God. We must behold the truth to be saved. Number two, 
The angel says, this coal has touched your lips. You know, sometimes we feel God is far away from us. We feel like he doesn't care about us. He's disconnected from us. Friend, the coal that comes from the altar is the place where Jesus died. And it has touched our lips. When God touches us with who he is and what he has done, the life can never be the same. Grace at the altar is that fiery stuff that rebukes us, but it's also that precious fire that touches us and cleans us and transforms us. Lips that can sin must confess Jesus as Savior to be healed. Thirdly, the angel says, your guilt is taken away. Friend, guilt is the realization that you've sinned against God and you've sinned against others and that you're unclean and that you deserve the judgment of the real high God on your sin and you. It's the honest admission that that's what I deserved. And you know, guilt repels us from God. We want to pull away from God and we feel it. Guilt is that very state of mind that would drive you away from the one who wants to save you. It is the natural consequence of sinning against God. But the coal, the hot coal from the altar came to Isaiah. The coal that is touching the concept of the sacrifice of Christ and his mediation carries the fire of God's presence to take away the prophet's guilt. A prophet yet to be, I say, because that is the burden of God. He wants that man to bear it no more. How does the coal do it? How does a hot coal from the altar take away the guilt? You see, a hot coal carries fire in the coal. Christ was, fought, was caught at Calvary in a fire more fierce than the lake of, of fire than hell itself at the end of the millennium. If you want to find the hottest spot in the universe, it's the cross of Calvary because what he was going through is the altar. And he, he, he could have left it, but he stayed there and he endured every single pain and suffering from Adam to the end as if he himself had sinned so that he could bear our sins, as Peter says, on, in his body on the cross so that we could be alive to God, pardoned, free from guilt. So when the coal of the cross comes to the repentant believer, the glory of God takes away our guilt. That's right, the glory, the glow of the coal, the fire removes our guilt. It is God's glory to forgive the sinner. Do you hear me? Do you understand that? It's God's glory to forgive us. Moses said in Exodus 24, 6 and 7, the glory is God is merciful and forgiving, literally carrying iniquity, transgression, and sin. It is God. He said, show me your glory. And God says, I'm forgiving. I, I'm a merciful being. I carry iniquity, transgression, and sin. That is the ultimate light that God can show us. God doesn't have want guilt to, to take a hold in our lives. He wants us to see the glory of who he is. God wants you to come and see the light that shines in the face of Christ from the cross of Calvary. And so the coal of grace burns the guilt away because the altar makes a difference in broken lives on planet earth. It fills the temple, but the earth is full of his glory. Friend, when Jesus died, there was nothing to condemn anymore on that cross. Why? Because Jesus died for every sin and every sinner from Adam to the end. And thus the dead can no longer affect the living. Thus we are not trapped by Adam's sin one day more. We are free in the Son of God. Fourthly, the angel says, your sins are forgiven. You know, some people get all busted up. Because the Bible can say at any point in time, your sins are forgiven. God doesn't need to have to wait to the cross to forgive us because he knows of the cross and what will be in, in the Old Testament. He can forgive back then based on the future. In fact, we know from inspiration that God has already forgiven us in his heart. 
It is the disposition of his character that is worked out in history. The angel says, your sins are forgiven. Now, Jesus said this at times to men and women who were humbled by failure or humbled by a relapse into sin or humbled by an illness that was debilitating. He said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. He said to the woman caught in the act of adultery, what did he say? Your sins are forgiven. And it made, it made the religious leaders mad that he would do this kind of thing. Don't we want to get a pound of meat out of someone if they fail? Don't we often want someone to show that they're repentant by squirming a little bit, right? Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. He said of the woman that had washed his feet before Simon, the scoffing Pharisee, your sins are forgiven. The evidence suggests that the woman caught in the act of adultery and the woman that washed his feet is the same woman. He said, your sins are forgiven. Grace and forgiveness are not the things we achieve. They are the very things we must receive by grace. Friend, we cannot earn the gifts of God and the vision of the real high God, but we can receive them when the coal from the altar touches our lives way down low where we live. Our right to forgiveness is the cross of Christ. It's huge. Our right to be free from the past is the cross of Christ. Our right standing before God is nothing less and nothing more than the certain truth of mercy, grace, and forgiveness that comes to us from the altar, the cross of Christ. John says God's glory is the cross. You read the Gospel of John, the glory is revealed at the cross. The glory of the most holy place, the Shekinah glory shines at the cross when Jesus dies. Paul says, God forbid that I should glory in anything but the cross of Christ, by which I have been crucified to the world and the world to me. Friend, when God touches your life in the right way, with his glory, the life no longer lives for itself. The glory is not about you. It's about doing something for others as God has loved you. And so the person who's seen the glory, who's had the coal touch his lips, that person will live for someone else. Isaiah 6, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, What? Here am I, send me. You know, many people want to go out and serve God. But to serve God without having seen the vision of God, without recognizing him as king, without realizing that the altar coal must touch your lips and life, without being transformed, to go means nothing. Where are you today? I ask the question, are you trying to prove something to God in your own way? trying to demonstrate by your religion, by your acts that you're religious? Are you trying to be innovative in your religion like the philosopher King Isaiah was and insist that God do it your way? Are you the sum of your own God ideas so that you have taken the place of the real high God who should be king in your life? Is the cross of Christ too complicated for you so that you can't submit to the fact that Jesus died for your sins? Isaiah said, woe is me, I am lost. The angel said, you are forgiven and you are clean and your guilt is taken away. That's the paradox. It's when we're lost, we're found. It's when we're broken, we're mended. It's when we have been humbled, we are exalted. And thus the gospel prophet learns the gospel in the vision of the great king. The person who is cleaned out by grace, as Isaiah was, is grateful for the grace that cleans. 
Friend, the Lord knows, now speaks in the divine assembly in the vision, and the call is given as a question for all to hear in the heavenly council. God says, who will go and speak for me? And Isaiah then speaks up quickly, I will go, here am I, send me. You know, at this point, God speaks to Isaiah personally. Not until this point. The real high God speaks to the unclean man made clean by grace who has felt the fire of the altar. And God says, and, and God speaks to him. And here's what God says in verse 9. He says, go and say or go and speak. Now you can speak for me as a prophet. Now you can speak to the people. Now you can represent me because what I need to say to them has been said to you and you now live that which you must teach and preach. Friend, God doesn't need us to be soul winners. He doesn't need us to prove something by how effective we can be with this program or that. God doesn't need us at all. But you know, God loves us. He loves us more than his own divine being. And so God cleanses us in the call to save those who are unclean. We can't go anywhere for him unless we have seen the vision of the real high God that brings the coal from the altar to our lips. I, for, you know, as I'm getting older, and I am aging a little bit, I, a little bit, about the same rate you're aging, okay? <clears throat> and yeah, I'm older than some of you, but not as old as some. So I'm somewhere in the middle of someone and another. But as I'm getting older, I'm coming to realize just how important the cross of Christ is. You know, I started my ministry trying to be theological. You know, I came out of seminary. I was teaching and preaching this and that. But the older I get, the more I study my Bible, the more I realize how precious Jesus is and what he did on the cross for me. The vision of power, majesty, and authority in Isaiah 6 comes from the king who alone forgives the sinner and who alone makes him clean. If you have no authority to be king, you cannot pronounce that person unclean. If you have no authority to be king, you cannot forgive a sinner who has sinned. God is king and thus his glory is to forgive his people. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, the real high God whose glory fills the deepest needs of our lives, who is right here where we live. Glory. God bless you. God bless you. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.